Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bookish Babbles, the podcast where we reread our favorite books and chat about them. I'm your host, Allison, and without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to episode 10 of Bookish Babbles. Uh, we are in the double digits. Woo! <laughs> and uh, we are at the end of Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Uh, today we're talking about chapter 30 and the epilogue. So next episode will be a wrap-up slash final thoughts episode. And I'm going to have my friend Gabby on the show to talk about Ballad. I'm so excited. Not only just to have her on the show, but because um, it'll be the first time where I can just, you know, talk to someone about this book uh spoilers and all and because most of my friends who've read the hunger games with me back in the day like haven't read ballad yet and you know i hope that in the months leading up to the movie more of them will read the book and we can chat about it but yeah i'm really excited to to talk to gabby and record next week's episode and before i uh like really dive into the episode um just in case no one's heard the news but we have our percy jackson guys we percy jackson has been cast for the show oh my god so uh the kid from the movie with ryan reynolds was it the adam project um uh walk uh walker scobell thinks it's a think that's how you say his name yeah he's our percy like i haven't seen the i haven't seen the adam project but i need to watch it now because apparently he's really good in it but oh my god like i can't believe like this is really happening (laughs) because i was 12 years old when the uh movie that shall not be named the irrelevant movie adaptation came out too so i have been waiting years to have a good like on-screen adaptation of Percy Jackson. I thought it would never happen. Like I kept hearing rumors for years, but oh my god, it's real. We have our Percy. I may have cried a little when I heard the news drop and then I was just elated for the rest of the day. Um someone check up on me when the casting for Annabeth is announced cuz I will be so much worse than I am today. <laughs> so yeah, um I will not be okay when the trailer drops. I or the rest of the cast is announced and um i will be insufferable when the first episode premieres so oh my god i can't believe it and like i have not i've not seen this kid act yet i have not heard him speak but already um if anyone gives this kid shit i'm ready to fight them anyway um i need to talk about ballad otherwise i'll just keep gushing over my excitement for the Percy Jackson series, but anyway, what was I talking about? Um, right. So, uh, speaking of cast, um, still waiting for the cast of Ballad to be announced. Um, I need to know who Lucy Gray is. I need to know who's playing Sejanus and Jessup so I can start simping over them. <laughs> oh man, I'm so sorry for everyone listening right now. I'm all over the place. Uh, anyway, I should stop. I need to start this episode before I say anything more embarrassing than I already have. Okay, so, uh, last week, um, the group, the gang, the group, as in the Covey and the, and, um, Corio and Sejanus, uh, they take a pleasant lake trip, 
uh, Corio shows uh, what a backstabbing snake he is. Um, Allison is re-traumatized by Sejanus's death. Yes, I spoke in the third person. Uh, Lucy Gray and the Covey sing a whole bunch of songs. Uh, Coriolanus did a murder. And uh, to avoid being killed, he and Lucy Gray make plans to run away. This week, uh, Coriolanus gets into officer school but can't go. Wah, wah. Uh, he and Lucy Gray go back to the lake and uh, things don't go well. And then the book ends. Okay, so with all that being said, let's dive into chapter 30. Okay, so this chapter begins... Oh, hi, Ray. There goes my dog. Mm. So this chapter begins uh, right where the last one left off. Uh, Commander Hoff... Bless you, Ray. Uh, Commander Hoff tells uh, Coriolanus that he passed his officer exam and will be leaving for school the next day. Um, his scores were so good that he's been recommended for elite officer training in District 2. This, of course, is the worst time for Coriolanus to hear this news. Because, you know, it should be amazing news, but he can't go. Because, um, you know, he could be found guilty for murder any day now. And, you know, he doesn't want to be executed for that. Um... So now he's even more salty about having to run away and live in the woods. Because, um, you know, go, going to elite officer school is a great way to gain power. I do wonder, and uh, spoiler alert for the ending, I guess, but I do wonder, even if he had been linked to the murders, um, do you think Dr. Gall would have saved him? Because from re reading the end, we know that Gall purposely made sure that he became a peacekeeper for the summer, but wouldn't let him stay out there because she basically has plans to mold him into the kind of person she wants him to be. And even if Coriolanus had been caught for the murder, I'm pretty sure Gaul would have pulled strings and, you know, swept it under the rug. Because even though Mayfair is um, the daughter of a mayor, he's the mayor of District 12, which is the quote-unquote joke district to the capital. Ultimately, like, the capital doesn't care what happens to Mayfair. I mean, look what happens to Madge in this trilogy still not over it um bill and billy's death would be even less uh relevant and even more easier for them to sweep under the rug because in the grand scheme of things they wouldn't matter to the capital so anyway that's just my two cents on that but anyway so basically what i'm saying is i don't think uh coriolanus's life was ever in any real danger because of the murders lucy gray on the other hand yeah she was in trouble Anyway, so, um, Coriolanus leaves the base, uh, through the weak spot in the fence that Sejanus told him about. He heads to the hanging tree and finds Lucy Gray wearing the orange scarf. Um, she also has a small wagon with supplies. She, she greets him with a hug and a kiss, and he feels a little less salty about having to run away. He tells her the very romantic line, You're all that matters to me now. But personally, I just think he's trying to convince himself that this is a good thing because you know he feels like he had no other choice um lucy gray confesses that she doesn't think she's brave enough to do this on her own that after a couple of days she'd return to the covey on her own and i do really like how um the story acknowledges like the magnitude of running away like this and how hard it would really be and it's scary like, because in so many stories, teenagers who run away, it's almost like it's no big deal to them. And this feels realistic that they have doubts and that it's scary to them. 
Yes. And I, I know in Catching Fire, Katniss makes plans to run away at one point because, you know, Snow plans on killing her and her family any, any day now. But, I don't know, it doesn't feel as daunting because we know Katniss has the ability to survive in the wild. She can hunt, gather, start a fire, and survive in a forest arena with people actively trying to kill her on national television. So, um, running away into the woods for her sounds easy by comparison. So, Lucy Gray isn't uh, quite as, sur- as survival savvy as Katniss, though she's still pretty skilled. Like, she knows where to find food, she knows how to start a fire, and, you know, she too survived a Hunger Games. Uh, Coriolanus, on the other hand, um, he can sort of use a gun and has no other survival skills that I'm aware of. Except being able to climb a rope, I think. So yeah, um, only reason these two are running away is out of desperation. Uh, Lucy Gray has to kind of convince herself that the Covey will be okay without her. Um, I disagree. They were a hot mess when she was in the capital. They didn't work or perform at all while she was gone. And she doesn't even tell them she's leaving. Um, She sees Tam Amber right before um, she left that morning and told them she was going to look for... for a goat or something um so she doesn't even tell them she's leaving which i i think she probably does because you know the less they know about where she is the safer they are when everyone ultimately will start looking for her especially the mayor um but at the same time if she's if she just leaves and they have no idea where she is that that's almost worse maybe um when she was in the capital, they at least knew where she was and there was the hope she would come back. And as she's running away to go north, they have no idea where she is and no idea when or if she'll come back. And, and Lucy Gray is just in a really terrible position and I'm not entirely blaming her, but I'm not sure she she thought through the whole like leave and not tell the cubby thing. Um we also learned that after the show uh, the previous night, the commander told Lucy Gray not to perform the hanging tree anymore, claiming the song is quote-unquote too dark, but all we know that means it's, you know, too rebellious. And can't have that. And Lucy Gray is also leaving behind her guitar and her mother's dresses for Maud Ivory since she won't need them in the wild. And this makes uh, Coriolanus realize, like, oh yeah, I'm not the only one giving up my dreams. You're like, yeah, no shit. And I know that it's really easy to get, like, wrapped up in your own worries, especially when you're a teenager and your brain isn't fully developed to think everything through, but uh, Corio is really self-absorbed to an annoying degree, at least for me. I mean, I'm obviously very biased toward Lucy Gray, but um, seeing what he does later in this chapter, I think my feelings are justified. Anyway, so they decide... Uh, to head to the lake first uh, before going north since uh, Lucy Gray wants to see it one more time. And I'm going to start reading um, this session on page uh, 492. Lucy Gray gazed back at the town, although the only thing Coriolanus could make out was the gallows. Goodbye, District 12. Goodbye, Hanging Tree and Hunger Games and Mayor Lip. Someday something will kill me, but it won't be you. She turned and headed deeper into the woods. Not much to miss, agreed Coriolanus. I'll miss the music and my pretty birds, said Lucy Gray with a catch in her voice. I'm hoping one day they can follow me, though. 
You know what I won't miss? People, Coriolanus replied. Except for a handful. They're mostly awful, if you think about it. People aren't so bad, really, she said. It's what the world does to them. Like us, in the arena, we did things in there we'd never have considered if they'd just left us alone. I don't know. I killed Mayfair and there was no arena in sight, he said. But only to save me, she thought it over. I think there's a natural goodness built into human beings. You know, when you've stepped across the line into evil, and it's your life's challenge to try and stay on the right side of that line. Sometimes there are tough decisions. He'd been making them all summer. I know that. Of course I do. I'm a victor, she said ruefully. It'd be nice in my new life not to have to kill anyone else. I'm with you there. Three seems enough for one lifetime, and certainly enough for one summer. So once again, they show their um, different views on people in the world, and personally, I'm on Lucy Gray's side for her views, obviously. Um, I mean, because ultimately, we as individuals, we do get to make choices, um, but the environment we're in, like, does have a big influence on us, and and I do believe, like, at people's, at people's core, like, overall, they are good people, and, and I'm just saying, if those in power, like, you know, the capital actually took care of its citizens and gave them a better quality of life, they wouldn't have the need to rebel and quote-unquote cause trouble, because, you know, how dare they want to have their basic needs for quality of life met. Um, anyway, after that conversation, uh, Coriolanus, uh, goes to get a walking stick for them since, uh, they don't have any weapons and he hears, um, an animal crying out off in the distance. Then Coriolanus realizes that he slipped, uh, when Lucy Gray asked, um, who the third person was that he killed. Because remember, she only knows about Mayfair and Bobbin and, you know, she would hate him if she knew he was also responsible for Sejanus's death. Um, also, when she asked the question, it caught him off guard, and he ended up driving a piece of bark under his nail. So, he tries to distract her by asking if she can pull the splinter out. It doesn't work because she asked again. So, Corio tries to, uh, BS his way out of this by saying that he killed the quote-unquote old him, or whatever, trying to sound somewhat romantic, I think, I don't know. Uh, Lucy Gray gets the splinter out of him. Um, by the way, I like how in the first chapter of this book, he pricks his finger on a rose thorn from the Grandmim, and then the last chapter gets a splinter from a tree. Uh, anyway, the moment passes and the conversation ends, and they don't speak again for a while, and at this point, I think Lucy Gray is now, is now like, getting suspicious at the very least. Um, she's had to practice seeing past, uh, Billy's charming romantic, uh, bullshit. I doubt she'll easily believe Coriolanus now. They briefly, uh, talk about how long it'll take, uh, for people to notice that they're missing, and then they keep walking, lost in thought. Uh, once again, Coriolanus is spiraling, and I'll read you, and I'll read, uh, his thoughts to you. Uh, this starts at the bottom of page, uh, 494. They hiked on toward the lake, each lost in their own thoughts. It all seemed unreal to him, as if this were just a pleasure outing, as as the one two Sundays ago had been. As if they were going for a picnic, and he must be sure to get back in time for fried bologna and curfew. But no, when they reached the lake, they'd move on to the wilderness, 
to a life consumed with the most basic type of survival. How would they eat? Where would they live? And what on earth would they do with themselves when the challenges of obtaining food and shelter had been met? Her with no music. Him with no school or military or anything. Have a family? It seemed too bleak an existence to condemn a child to. Any child, let alone one of his own. What was there to aspire to once wealth, fame, and power had been eliminated? Was the goal of survival further survival and nothing more? So yeah, uh, Coriolanus clearly doesn't know how to exist in a like non-capitalistic society where he does where he doesn't make money or gain power like he's not because Coriolanus isn't like you know an addict like high bottom is he's not an alcoholic but i'm pretty sure he's addicted to just wanting to be a productive member of society like never relaxing like i doubt he ever takes vacation especially as president where he never truly relaxes he's always doing something so yeah, he can't handle living out in the woods very well. So anyway, uh, they get to the lake and decide to start fishing. Um, Lucy Gray catches two fish. Corio catches zero, <laughs> which I think is funny. Then toward the bottom of page uh, 495, we get a wonderful glimpse into Coriolanus's very narciss narcissistic thoughts. This was his life now. Digging for worms and being at the mercy of the weather. Elemental, like an animal. He knew this would be easier if he wasn't such an exceptional person. The best and brightest humanity had to offer. The youngest to pass the officer candidate test. If he'd been useless and stupid, the loss of civilization would not have hollowed out his inside in this manner. He'd have taken it in stride. Again, I'm not a psychologist or any kind of mental health expert. I don't have the education or the training, but does this not scream narcissism? Also, everyone inherently has worth no matter who they are. It doesn't matter how quote-unquote useful you're deemed by Coriolanus's shitty standards. Everyone has worth. Anyway, um, putting my soapbox away for now. Uh, they go into the one cabin that's still standing um, so that they can start a fire to cook the fish since it just started to rain. And uh, Coriolanus is growing more bitter by the minute since he's realizing this is his life now and he won't be able uh, to go back to a fulfilling future. Or his version of a f fulfilling future. Um, when Coriolanus closes the door behind him, he notices that it had been hiding something. It's a shotgun, but not just any shotgun. Coriolanus finds more weapons hidden, and the weapons uh, Sejanus had purchased that night in the shed, including the murder weapons. Dun dun dun! So, normally I don't take a break in the middle of a chapter, but I will here because... um. We're covering uh, less material than we normally do. And plus, um, it, it's my podcast. I can take a break when I want to. Um, so when we come back, we'll talk about everything that that happens after this. Hey guys, it's Allison at a different point in time. And it's time for another random recommendation. Uh, so this week for the first recommendation, I'm going to recommend a, y a YA series. Um, it's pretty 
well known back in the day. Like, it's not super obscure, but, you know, it's a little bit older and it, I don't know, you never had the chance, you never got around to reading it. Um, I, I highly recommend it. It's the Gone series by Michael Grant. Um, I'm going to read the summary on the book. Of the first book, obviously. In the blink of an eye, everyone disappears. Gone. Except for the young, teens, middle schoolers, toddlers, but not a single adult. No teachers, no cops, no doctors, no parents. And just as suddenly, there are no phones, no internet, no television, no way to figure out what's happened, and no way to get help. Hunger threatens. Bullies rule. A sinister creature looks. Animals are mutating, and the teens themselves are changing, developing new talents, unimaginable, dangerous, deadly powers that grow stronger by the day. It's a terrifying new world. Sides are being chosen. A fight is shaping up. Townies against rich kids. Bullies against the weak. Powerful against powerless. And time is running out. On your birthday, you will disappear just like everyone else. Yeah, there are six book books in this series total, and I know there are like like a sequel trilogy that came out a little while ago, but I haven't read those. I've only read the original a trilogy. Like uh, guys, I have the original like hardbacks with uh, not the new covers with um the old ones with like just the people staring off into the wind in the distance and. And yeah, if you want like a YA series with like an ensemble cast of all these kids with superpowers, I really recommend this series. Um, there's an Annabeth-like character, you know, super smart, blonde, main female character. So there's that. But yeah, that's my, that's my first recommendation. So back to the show. Okay, we're back. Um, where were we? Okay, so, um. At this point, Lucy Gray um, still hasn't seen the weapons. Uh, she's still preoccupied with um, starting a fire to cook the fish. Uh, Coriolanus wonders um, how the weapons got there, but then quickly realizes that Spruce must have hidden them there before getting captured. And Because he would know better than to hide them in District 12. Plus, uh, he and Billy had been friends, so Billy could have easily shown him the lake house. And as soon as Coriolanus uh, comes to this conclusion, that's when Lucy Gray does finally see the weapons. And this is when I think Lucy Gray, like, starts to put the pieces together. Um, she knows um, those are the murder weapons and knows that, you know, once they're disposed of, then there's nothing else linking uh, Corio to the murder. And he no longer has a reason to run away. And she's already suspicious of him at this point because of that slip he made when he when you know he stupidly said three murders is enough for me but you know she acts um casually about this moment because she's she's she a smart cookie and she also plays dumb by saying like oh are those the murder weapons from the shed i think she already knows um those are the weapons she, she's just again playing dumb and wants um to hear coriolanus confirm it himself which he does coriolanus asks them um, if they should bring the weapons with them but she says no because she doesn't trust them and i'm gonna read uh, this bit of dialogue at the bottom of page uh, 497 uh for no reason other than uh this is the last time lucy gray speaks 
So starting with the line, Lucy Gray says, Oh, are these the ones they had in the shed? I think they must be, he said. Should we take the guns along? Lucy Gray drew back, rose to her feet, and considered them for a long moment. Rather not. I don't trust them. Uh, these will come in handy, though. She pulled out a long knife, turning the blade over in her hand. I think I'll go dig up some Katniss, since we've got the fire going anyway. There's a good patch by the lake. I thought they weren't ready, he said. Two weeks can make a lot of difference, she said. It's still raining, he objected. You'll get soaked. She laughed. Well, I'm not made of sugar. So I think uh, that Lucy Gray's last word is uh, really important, and it's um, very telling that this is the last thing she tells us. So she almost always uh, puts on, you know, her songbird persona because, again, she's a performer and it and it's not a complete like, you know, lie or deception. I think it is really part of who she is, but that's not her whole personality. You know, she's more than just her performance. Um, she's a lot tougher and smarter than people get, give her credit for and, you know, people underestimate her. Um, so, again, I just love that. Her last line in the book is just another subtle reminder that, you know, we don't necessarily know Lucy Gray fully. And anyway, she goes to gather some Katniss and Coriolanus is left alone with his thoughts. So he's obviously uh, very overjoyed that the murder weapon he used is here and not being studied in a lab. Because, like I said earlier, it's the best evidence linking him to the murder. Uh, all he has to do is destroy the weapon, and then he can go to District 2, just like just like that. And nothing left to link him to the murder. Except for Lucy Gray, the one witness left. So, this next part of the book, I think almost everyone who's read it uh, considers it the best scene, and probably the one we're all looking forward to most, uh, seeing brought to life on screen. And I'll get more to that in a bit, but first I want to read this passage starting on page uh, 498. Um, it's right after he realizes Lucy Gray can still link him to the murder. Well, no matter. She would never tell. She wouldn't be thrilled, obviously, when he told her that there had been a change of plans, that he was returning to the peacekeepers and heading to District 2 tomorrow at dawn, essentially leaving her to her fate. Still, she never rat him out. It wasn't her style, and it would implicate her in the murders as well. It would mean she could wind up dead, and as the Hunger Games had shown, Lucy Gray possessed an extraordinary talent for self-preservation. Plus, she loved him. She said so last night in the song. Even more, she trusted him. Although, if he ditched her in the woods to claw out an existence alone, no doubt she would consider it a, that a breach of faith. He had to think of just the right way to break the news. But what would that be? I love you deeply, but I love officer school more. That wasn't going to go over well. And he did love her. He did. It was just that only a few hours into this new life in the wilderness, he knew he hated it. The heat and the worms and, and those birds yakking nonstop. She was certainly taking a long time with those potatoes. First of all, I could have told you from the beginning, Corio, that you wouldn't enjoy living in the wilderness, nor last very long doing so. And second, how dare you have so little trust in Lucy Gray? Anyway, I'm going to keep reading. She hadn't wanted to go by herself. Too lonely. 
Her song said that she needed, loved, and trusted him. But would she forgive him, even if he deserted her? Billy Tope had crossed her, and he'd ended up dead. He could hear him now. Makes me sick how you're playing those kids. Poor Lucy Gray, poor lamb. And seeing her sinking her teeth into his hand, he thought about how coolly she'd killed in the arena. First that frail little wovey. That was a cold-blooded move if he'd ever seen one. Then the calculated way she'd taken out Treach, baiting him to attack her. Really, so she could whip that snake out of her pocket. And she claimed that Reaper had rabies, that it was a mercy kill, but who knew? No, Lucy Gray was no lamb. She was not made of sugar. She was a victor. This passage makes me so angry. Like, I, I just think the fact that you so quickly turn on her the second you perceive her to be standing in the... Standing in your way says more about you than her, Corio. Also, he completely twists and, like, warps Lucy Gray's actions. So, first, he judges her for literally defending herself from Billy when he attacked her. Um, calls the way she killed Wovi a, quote-unquote, cold-blooded move. Because, you know, apparently Corio has selective amnesia because he's literally the one who told her to use rat poison. And also, Lucy Gray um, claims that, you know, when she left the poison water bottle lying around, she was aiming for coral, but Wovi just happened to be the one who got to it first. And, you know, it's it's the Hunger Games. You were the one who wanted her to, to survive. Um, uh, then Coriolanus claims that she had calculated the way she killed Treach. Um, uh, personally, I read it as a self-defense, self like, you know, spur of the moment thing, but whatever. Um... I'm pretty sure Coriolanus killing Mayfair could also be considered quote-unquote calculated, but I, I guess it's okay when you do it, but not when Lucy Gray does it. Because, um, you know, if Lucy Gray putting a poisonous snake on Treach so he wouldn't kill her is calculated, then so is your calculated uh, decision to kill Mayfair so she wouldn't get you executed, Corio. Anyway, we all know he's a narcissist with double standards. So, um... Coriolanus, make sure the rifle is loaded before going outside. He goes toward the spot where Clerk Carmine had found um, the Katniss plant during um, the last trip, and it becomes clear that Lucy Gray is hiding from him. And again, this whole scene is so good, and I'm going to try really hard not to just, you know, read the whole rest of the chapter out loud. I'm not an audiobook narrator. I couldn't do it justice. Uh, just go listen to the official audiobook. Um, anyway, it's clear Lucy Gray is hiding, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out why. Uh, Coriolanus is sure that she's figured out the truth about, you know, who really betrayed Sejanus, and he also c is coming out with a, a loaded gun, so not a good look for him. Still, he calls out to her, saying, like, I just want to talk. Uh, thinks that her plan now is to just hide until he leaves, but... Uh, that doesn't work for him because, you know, if she went back to 12 and the mayor manages to get her arrested, she could confess while being interrogated, their whole history would come out, there could be some kind of trial, High Bottom could be brought in as a witness, and, you know, he would not work in Corio's favor. So, either way, he can't risk it, so he needs to find her. He goes back to the house and manages uh, to find tracks to follow, and they lead him back into the woods. 
Um, also, I don't know why, but every time I think of this scene, I think it takes place at night when in reality, it's actually like the middle of the day. Um, does anyone else have the same problem? Just me? But yeah, no, uh, not nighttime, just in overcast, giving a not ideal visibility in the woods. Um, so still kind of a creepy atmosphere. So I think it fits the scene. Anyway, uh, Coriolanus sees a patch of orange, a.k.a. the scarf, so he thinks he's found Lucy Gray. Psych! It's only the scarf uh, laying across some briars. Uh, he leans down to pick it up, and surprise! There's a snake, and it bites him in the arm. And now the snake is my favorite character in the book. <laughs> Congratulations, random snake. Uh, and even better, it gets away, so yay, the snake lives. Uh, Coriolanus realizes that this was a trap that Lucy Gray had set up and is now convinced, like, she tried to kill him. Uh, spoiler alert, the snake is not poisonous, so Lucy Gray's... not Lucy Gray. Um, start over, Allison. Spoiler alert, the snake is not poisonous, so Coriolanus is just being dramatic as usual. He also, he also has a line where he says um, he's beginning to sympathize with Billy Tope, so... Uh, that's how you know he's now truly a baddie. <laughs> um, also, there's the chilling line that's uh, probably one of the most famous lines in the book on, on page uh, 502 that says, If he'd felt better, he'd have laughed at the irony of how quickly their relationship had deteriora deteriorated into their own private hunger games. God, I love Suzanne's writing. Have I made that obvious by now? So, uh, Coriolanus can't track Lucy Gray now, but he, uh, figures that she would, wouldn't go far because she would, she'd want to see if her plan worked and, you know, if it killed him. Uh, personally, I don't think she was trying to kill him with the snake because, um, I think she knows which ones are poisonous. Like, I think that she had figured out that Coriolanus, you know, essentially killed Sejanus and now, um is worried for her own life, and rightfully so. And so she set um, this trap as a sort of test to see how he'd react. I don't know, it's hard to say because we don't hear from Lucy Gray ever again, and we're getting all this, like, you know, filtered through Coriolanus, and he's not exactly the most reliable narrator. Anyway, so Coriolanus figures out that she's uh, going back to the house in order to get a weapon because she's you know, not going to fight someone with a rifle when she only has a knife. Uh, personally, if I was in her situation, I'd be taking off by now. Um, he hears movement uh, heading back to the lake and thinks he it's her. He follows it. He charges through the branches um, to the spot where he thinks uh, she is, but there's no sign of her. So, you know, he calls out to her and says stuff like, Hey, we can work something out. But, you know, he doesn't mean it. Um... Luckily, Lucy Gray doesn't buy his bullshit, and suddenly we hear her singing a verse of the hanging tree, uh, specifically the verse where it has that line about the necklace of rope, you know, just to rub it in that she knows about what he did to Sejanus. But then a bunch of Mockingjays start uh, copying the song, and the whole forest is filled with birds singing uh, the hanging tree, so now all the noise covers Lucy Gray. The woods came alive with their melody as dozens joined in. He dove through the trees and then opened fire on the spot the voice had come from. Had he hit her? He couldn't tell, because the bird song filled his ears, disorienting him. Little black specks swam in the field of his visions. His arm began to throb. 
Lucy Gray, he bellowed in frustration. Clever, devious, deadly girl. She knew they'd cover for her. He lifted the rifle and the machine. He lifted the rifle and machine gunned the trees, trying to wipe out the birds. Many fluttered into the sky, but the song had spread and the words were alive with it. Lucy Gray! Lucy Gray! Furious, he turned hit this way and that and finally blasted the woods in a full circle, going around and around until his bullets were spent. He collapsed on the ground, dizzy and nauseous, as the woods exploded, every bird of every kind screaming its head off, while the Mockingjays continued their rendition of the Hanging Tree, Nature Gone Mad, Jeans Gone Bad, Chaos. I know that I keep saying things along the lines of, I can't wait to see this scene, or it'll be so cool to look at on screen, but this is probably my most anticipated one to see. Just like, you know, Coriolane is screaming, firing the gun in all directions and birds all around him singing the hanging tree. And it's unclear if he hit Lucy Gray. And I've also read some interpretations of the scene where Coriolanus had essentially gone crazy and imagined Lucy Gray being there. And, you know, she was long gone. Which, if they lean into that kind of insanity angle, it would be really cool. So, either way, he gets back to the lake and disposes of the weapons by throwing it into the bottom of the lake, uses his father's compass to navigate his way back to base, and he makes it back and goes to the clinic and to treat the snake bite, and he's going to be fine, unfortunately, for us. Um, also, the medic uh, doesn't really question the how or why he was bitten, because according to him, the rain brings out the snakes. Uh, though the bite will leave a scar and Coriolanus decides that it's a good thing because it'll serve as a reminder for him to be more careful in the future. So he's cleared and goes back to his bunk and it's only mid-afternoon and his bunkmates haven't even gotten up yet. Which is so crazy because it felt like um, we were in the forest for a long time. Like I said earlier when I think of this scene, I have to remind myself that it didn't happen at night. But uh, Smiley and crew haven't even had breakfast yet when Coriolanus uh, tried to shoot Lucy Gray and she may or may not have gotten away. We don't know. Anyway, uh, Coriolanus goes to the bathroom, empties his pockets. Uh, most of the stuff is ruined from the lake water. Uh, his mother's uh, rose-scented uh, powder was reduced to a nasty paste and he has to throw it away as well as photos. And basically only the compass survived. And this is a really important detail because it metaphorically shows um, Coriolanus's like humanity kind of melting away. And now he all he has left is the symbol of his father. And now he's going to embrace that. He's going to, you know, officially become more like Crassus. And now he's like truly on his way to becoming the ruthless monster we all know him as in the trilogy. And he also packs um, Sejanus's thing so he can head back, send it back to his family that you know, would be considered the decent thing to do as to Janus's quote-unquote best friend. Pretty awful friend. He says goodbye the next morning uh, to his bunkmates and then goes um, on a hovercraft and takes a nap. So, after he gets on the hovercraft, dozes off, thinks about Lucy Gray, wondering 
uh, where she is while the melody of the hanging tree is, you know, stuck in his head. So good. Uh, hope that haunts you forever. <laughs> and he's woken up when an attendant tells him, hey, welcome to the capital. And naturally, Coriolanus is confused. But uh, the attendant says that they have orders to drop him off there. So he's brought to the Citadel. And naturally, Dr. Gall is there waiting for him in the lab. And she drops a mouse into a tank of golden snakes because why not? Uh, so Dr. Gall uh, tells uh, Coriolanus that she got his letter and his jabber jay. So, you know, this is confirmation that he definitely betrayed to Janus. So, yay. And they have a really... um important like conversation so i'm just gonna read from there to the end of the chapter because it just kind of sums up everything so um starts on page uh 508 on dr gall's uh line i got your letter she said and your jabber jay too bad about young plinth although is it really anyway i was pleased to see you were continuing your studies in 12 developing your world view he felt himself pulled right back into the old uh, tutorial with her as if nothing had happened. Yes, it was eye-opening. I thought about all the things we discussed. Chaos, control, and the contract. The three C's. Did you think about the Hunger Games? She asked. The, the day we met, Casca asked you what their purpose was and you gave the stock answer. To punish the districts. Would you change that now? Coriolanus remembered the conversation he'd had with Sejanus as they unpacked his duffel. I'd elaborate on it. They're not just to punish the dis they're not just to punish the districts. They're part of the eternal war. Each one in it is its own battle. One we one we can hold in the palm of our hand instead of waging a real war that could get out of our control. Hmm. She swung a mouse away from the gaping mouth. You there, don't be greedy. And they're a reminder of what we did to each other, what we have the potential to do again because of who we are, he continued. And who we And who are we? Did you determine? she asked. Creatures who need the capital to survive. He he couldn't help getting in a dig. It's all pointless though, you know. The Hunger Games, no one in twelve even watches it, except for the reaping. Uh we didn't even have a working television on base. Well, that could be a problem in the future. It's a blessing this year, given that I've had to erase the whole mess, said Dr. Gall. It was a mistake getting the students mixed up in it, especially when they started dropping like flies. Uh, presented the capital as far too vulnerable. You erased it, he asked. Every last copy gone, never to be aired again, she grinned. I, I have a master in the vault, of course, but that's just for my own amusement. Uh, he was glad about the erasure. It was just one more way to eliminate Lucy Gray from the world. The capital would forget her. The, the districts barely knew her, and District 12 had never accepted her as one of their own. In a few years, there would be a vague memory that a girl had once sung in the arena, and then sh that would be forgotten too. Goodbye, Lucy Gray. We hardly knew you. Not a total loss. I think we'll bring Flickerman back next year. And your idea about the betting is a keeper, she said. You need to somehow make the viewing mandatory. No one in 12 will tune into something that depressing by choice, he told her. They spend what little free time they have drinking to forget the rest of their lives. Dr. Gall chuckled. It seems you've learned a lot on your summer vacation, Mr. Snow. Vacation, he said, perplexed. 
Well, well, what were you going to do here? Lays around in the capital, combing out your curls. I thought a summer with the peacekeepers would be far more educational. She took in the confusion on his face. You don't think I've invested all this time in you to hand you off to those imbeciles in the districts, do you? I, I don't understand. I was told he began. She cut him off. I've ordered you an honorable discharge, effective immediately. You're to study under me at the university. The university? H here in the capital? He said in surprise. She dropped one last mouse into the tank. Classes start Thursday. So yeah, like I said earlier, um, like, Coriolan is going to, going to be a peacekeeper, you know, Gaul basically planned this. She wasn't going to let him get away, essentially. And, you know, he basically has spelled out to Gaul what he's been thinking the whole time, that the Hunger Games are necessary to help, to help maintain control, to remind uh, people what they're capable of and why they can't relive war. You know, all this in the name of keeping in order and control because he's terrified of chaos. And also, I'm really upset about the fact that they're erasing Lucy Gray. And I wonder, because we know in District 12 that they know that there was a victor before, before Hamish, because Katniss mentions it, but in her narration she doesn't say the victor's name so like do people know the name lucy gray like do they does anyone know the story or do they just not think about it at all or do they just not talk about it because no one knows what happens like what what is the da ah, i don't know point is i'm upset about it although i do like the idea that um the like Every time uh, someone from District 12 has won the Hunger Games, it's caused problems for the capital in some way. And it usually happens on what should be like a significant year for the Hunger Games. Because, you know, the 10th anniversary Hunger Games was a big deal. It was the first time they tried the mentor program. First time they tried the betting system. And um, Lucy Gray won. District 12 won. But then it ended up, you know, making the capital look best. They had to erase it. And then... Uh, Hamish won the 50th games and quarter quells obviously a very big deal but the way he won his games was controversial make the capital look stupid so then they essentially erased it sort of because um I'm pretty sure Katniss in Catching Fire mentioned something about not ever seeing Hamish's games like they never showed reruns of the games just like they never showed reruns of Lucy Gray's games and and I mean 74th games 74th year technically like not a big deal but you know Katniss and uh, Peta obviously made it a bit very big deal and then next year was the 75th another quarter quell where um because of District 12 things do not go according to plan so I do love, so I love the reoccurring theme of victors from District 12, um, messing up the status quo. <laughs> um, okay. Anyway, um, we're gonna take, uh, one more break, and then when we come back, we will talk about the epilogue. Alright, time for another, uh, random recommendation. This is another, um, book that, you know, when it came out, it was pretty popular, and, I mean, the author is still pretty well-known, but instead of um, a, YA, a YA series, this is um, a historical fiction novel. 
and it is uh, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Um, I know he had a book come out, was it either late last year or earlier this year? I can't remember. Either way, it's on my TBR. I need to read it. because, And this was the book that really made me like re-fall in love with historical fiction when I first read it. So I'll just read the summary. Marie Lore lives with her father in Paris near the Museum of Natural History, where he works as the master of its thousands of locks. When she is six, uh, Marie goes blind and her father builds a perfect miniature of their neighborhood so she can memorize it by touch and navigate her way home. When she is 12, the Nazis occupy Paris and father and daughter flee to the vault citadel of St. Malo where Marie's a reclusive great-uncle lives in a tall house by the sea. With them, they carry what might be the museum's most valuable and dangerous jewel. In a mining town in Germany, orphan Winner grows up with his younger sister, enchanted by a crude radio they find. Uh, Werner becomes an expert at building and fixing these crucial new instruments, a talent that wins him a place at the Brutal Academy for Hitler Youth, then a, spe a special assignment to track the resistance. More and more aware of the human cost of his intelligence, uh, Werner travels through the heart of the war and family into St. Malo, where his where his story and Marie Lors converge. Yeah, it's been a while since I read this. It's been like five or six years. When did this book come out? 2014. Okay, wow. Yeah, it's been a while. But yeah, like, I mean, this book won the 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 Pulitzer Prize, so that should say that should say something. And yeah, I think it's great. I think it's a good start if you want to get into historical fiction. And with that being said, uh, back let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back, and we're here at the end. Yay! But I'm also sad it's the end. But also, but it's also exciting because we'll get to talk about the trilogy where Katniss will unknowingly help get some justice for Lucy Gray and Sejanus. Uh, anyway, let's get let's get started. So um, when the epilogue uh, opens, a couple months have passed. Um, it's now October and university students are halfway through the fall term. And there's a very important change in the narrative. So, you know, Ballad is told in third person. We know that, obviously. And it's told um, from Coriolanus's point of view, and the narrator, you know, calls him Coriolanus. Um, uh, well, that's changed. Uh, now the narration calls him Snow. So he's officially abandoned who he was at the beginning of the book. He's fully committed to becoming, you know, the heartless monster we all know and love to hate. So Snow is leaving um, the University Science Center wearing a shiny new suit. Uh, he wants to look as impressive and intimidating as possible so he can drive his rivals crazy. So Snow's having a pretty good day. He just finished a special honors class in military strategy with Dr. Gall. Um, sounds like an awful day to me, but clearly me and Snow are very different people. Uh, anyway, Snow uh, also has a game maker internship. Um, earlier that morning, he'd been at the Citadel 
with other game makers working out ways uh, to engage the districts and the capital for the next Hunger Games. Uh, Snow pitched the idea that, you know, a win for a tribute should be a win for their whole district uh, because it's the best way to get people more engaged with the games because, as we know, uh, games got to stay relevant. Uh, so they come up uh, with the idea that when a tribute wins the games, uh, everyone in their uh, districts would get food. So uh, Snow also came up with the idea for the Victor's Village, and we all know that becomes a thing in the future. And basically, uh, the goal for all these uh, prizes for victors is to encourage uh, more competitive and stronger tributes, you know, aka the future careers, uh, to volunteer because that makes the games uh, even more entertaining. And then we learn that the Plints have unofficially adopted Snow, and he's now basically Mr. Plint's uh, designated heir. Because, you know, being 18, he's too old to be officially adopted, but this works out for him because he'd never uh, want to give up the name Snow, especially, you know, if that meant taking the name of someone from the districts. So shortly after uh, Snow comes back from 12, that's when the two uh, families merge, uh, Mr. Plinth uh, buys the Snow's apartment so they don't have to move. So, yay, you accomplished your goal of keeping your home at the beginning of the book. Um, they also buy the Doolittle's place below them so uh, Mr. and Mrs. Plinth can move in. Uh, Mrs. Plinth comes by daily to help with the grandmam who begrudgingly accepted her as their new maid, quote-unquote. But, I don't know, I think she might be slowly warming up to Mrs. Plinth. Could be wrong about that, but I could also see that happening. Uh, but at least Tigress uh, gets along with her great, so at least Mrs. Plinth has... Um, one genuine friend within her new quote-unquote family. Uh, Mrs. Plinth, of course, loves Corio. Um, he and uh, Mr. Plinth weirdly get along and are kind of compatible in, you know, surrogate um, father-son relationship. Uh, Snow even says that he can almost forget Mr. Plinth is district, which is pretty huge compliment coming from him. So now the Plinths, uh, they take care of them financially. They pay the property taxes and give Snow a generous allowance, which he uses to buy a lot of fancy clothes now, apparently. Um, so on this particular day, Liam, when the epilogue is taking place, um, it would have been Sejanus's 19th birthday, insert, crying here. <laughs> um, and that night they're having a quiet dinner to remember him. Uh, Festus and Lysistrata were invited. Glad they're still alive and thriving. Though I wonder how long they last since, as we know from Finnick's testimony in Mockingjay, uh, being friends with Coriolanus Snow can be a hazard. And as and Snow uh, does plan on giving the box of Sejanus' stuff to his parents that night. Uh, but before he does, um, he has something important to do before going to dinner. Uh, what is this errand he has to do before going home, you ask? Uh, it's seeing High Bottom at the Academy. This won't end well. Uh, Snow asks for his mother's uh, compact back, since um, there's no reason High Bottom would need to hang on to it. Uh, he also gives uh, High Bottom Sejanus' diploma, since it wouldn't look, since it would look bad um, for a capital trader to have one. So he puts. A photo of the Plinth family in the frame uh, where the diploma once was. And then um, then uh, Snow swept uh, three medicine bottles into the trash can. I'm sure that's not important. Uh, then we get some really uh, important history. 
So Snow finally confronts uh, Highbottom about, you know, his history with his father and the creation of the Hunger Games. So Highbottom was the one who came up with the idea while taking uh, Dr. Gall's class while they were at university. A class he was failing since he hated Gall and, you know, didn't want to participate. Uh, Highbottom also paired um, with Crassus for the final project because, you know, they're best friends. Friends do that. Uh, the assignment was to create a punishment for one's enemies so extreme they could never forget how they wronged you. Uh, Highbottom and Crassus got drunk, uh, came up with the idea. Crassus, you know, promised that, you know, it was just a private joke. But Crassus wrote up the proposal without Highbottom's permission and handed it in. Highbottom was horrified uh, once he was sober and it was too late to stop his friend and never forgave him. And then uh, after the war, uh, Gaul pulled out Highbottom's proposal, and thus the Hunger Games became a thing. And that's the night he first tried Morphling. And, you know, he hoped it would phase out since it's so horrible, but, you know, clearly underestimated how much Gaul wanted to keep it going. Uh, so now just everything about Highbottom starts to really make sense, you know, why he hates Coriolanus so much, why he hates Gaul. And, like, you understand, he wasn't necessarily acting out of pure evil most of the time, but a lot of times out of guilt, I think, and just self-loathing and wanting to forget everything, which is really sad. Um, however, he still bullied a child just because, you know, he hated the child's father, so I guess <clears throat> that kind of makes high bottom. The Severus Snape of the Hunger Games universe. Now, sometimes I do wonder, like, had he maybe tried treating Coriolanus better, maybe things would have been different? I don't know. Th that's hard to say. That's I'd have to think about that. Right, so after that, I'm just going to read the conversation they have and then the end, because there's only a couple pages left in the book, and why not? It's the end. It certainly supports her view of her humanity, said Snow, especially using the children. And why is that, asked Dean Highbottom. Because we credit them with innocence, and if the most innocent among us turns to most innocent among us tur turn to killers in the Hunger Games, what does that say? That is our that our essential nature is violence, Snow explained. Self destructive, Dean Highbottom murmured. Snow remembered Pluribus's account of his father's falling out with Dean Highbottom and quoted the letter. Like moths to a flame, the Dean's eyes narrowed, but Snow only smiled and said, But of course you're testing me. You know her far better than I do. I'm not so sure. Dean Highbottom traced the silver rose on the compact with a finger. So what did she say when you told her you were leaving? Dr. Gall, Snow asked. Your little songbird, the Dean said. When you left twelve, was she sad to see you go? I expect it made us both a little sad. Snow pocketed the compact and gathered Sejanus's things. I'd better go. We have a new living room set being delivered, and I promised my cousin I'd be there to oversee the movers. Off you go, then, said Dean Highbottom, back to the penthouse. Snow did not care to talk about Lucy Gray with anyone, particularly not Dean Highbottom. Smiley had sent him a letter at the old Plint's address, mentioning her disappearance. Everybody thought the mayor had killed her, but they couldn't prove it. 
As to the covey, a new commander had replaced Hoff, and his first move had been to outlaw the shows at the Hob because music caused trouble. Yes, thought Snow, it certainly does. Lucy Gray's fate was a mystery then, just like the little girl who who shared her name in that maddening song. Was she alive? Dead? A ghost who haunted the wilderness? Perhaps no one would ever really know. No matter. Snow had been the ruination of them both. Poor Lucy Gray. Poor ghost girl singing away with her birds. Are you, are you, coming to the tree, where I told you to run so we'd both be free? She could fly around District 12 all she liked, but she and her Mockingjays could never harm him again. Sometimes he, he would remember a moment of sweetness and almost wish things had ended differently, but it would never have worked out between them, even if he'd stayed. They were simply too different, and he didn't like love, the way it made him feel stupid and vulnerable. If he ever married, he'd choose someone incapable of swaying his heart. Someone he hated, even, so they could never manipulate him the way Lucy Gray had, never made, make him feel jealous or weak. Livia Cardew would be perfect. He imagined the two of them, the President and the First Lady, presiding over the Hunger Games a few years from now. He continued the games, of course, when he ruled Panem. People would call him a tyrant, iron-fist and cruel. But at least he would ensure survival for survival's sake, giving them a chance to evolve. What else could humanity hope for? Really, it should thank him. He passed Pluribus's nightclub and allowed himself a small smile. A person could get rat poison at any number of places, but he, but he'd uh, surreptitiously sur scooped up a pinch of it from the black, from the back alley last week and taken it home. It'd been tricky getting it into the morphling bottle, especially using gloves. But eventually, he'd squeeze what he judged to be a sufficient dose through the opening. He'd taken the precaution of making sure the bottle was wiped clean. There was nothing to make Dean Highbottom suspicious uh, of it when he'd pulled it from the trash and slipped it in into his pocket. Nothing when he unscrewed the dropper and dripped the morphling onto his tongue. Although he couldn't help hoping that, as the dean drew his final breath, he'd realize what so many others had realized when they challenged him. What all of Penham would know one day. What was inevitable. Snow lands on top. The end. Boom. Nope. I just slammed the book shut and Ray just sat up like, what are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, Ray. And so, that's the end. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, and just like that, um, Snow has officially poisoned his first victim. So, the first in a very, very long line. And we don't know what happens to Lucy Gray. No, I do have some, I do have, like, my own personal theories about what happened to Lucy Gray, but I'm gonna discuss all of that next week, um... For the our wrap up and final thoughts with Gabby, um, so yeah, uh, feel free to send any thought to send any thoughts you'd have. We'd love love to hear them for the episode, so we're not just and it'll be exciting to have Gabby on, so you're not just hearing me talking to a void about all my final thoughts. Yeah, so 
don't forget to, you know, follow, subscribe, so you get notified as soon as that episode drops, and um, follow on Instagram, of course, um, e- you can email me with thoughts, um, all in the show notes, um, I'm getting really tired, <laughs> so I'm so sorry, yeah, I hope um, all of you listening, you have a great day, night, whatever, you're listening to this and I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.